That's my favorite thing about the mythology of Halloween, by the way. I love the idea that there's ghouls and all sorts of heinous shit happening around. The kids are just dancing around in masks and unaware of, like, the ghouls and the druids. What a fantastic image. Just looking for chocolate, yeah. Looking for chocolate. Can I get some trick-or-treats? It's done. Go pay a visit to your house, Benny boy. Say hi to that nice wife and kid of yours. Travelcast Director's Cut Special, The Boxborn Wraith, by Kevin D. Anderson. Travelcast Director's Cuts are regular monthly specials where we bring back stories from the archives and play them uncut as part one. Then in part two, we interview the author, get to know them, and replay the episode with bonus direct commentary from the author, giving you insight about his or her thoughts on all the details going into the story and the production. Hope you enjoy. Halloween special, episode 87. The Drabblecast is a weekly flash fiction podcast magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your ghost, Norm Sherman. Well, Halloween is just around the corner, and we here at the Drabblecast are particularly thrilled. It's the season for zombies, werewolves, hot nurse costumes, and dried puke on the sidewalk. It's the only time of the year that you get to eat those disgusting, uh, suspicious, chewy candies wrapped in unmarked orange or black paper. Haunted hayrides, cheap plastic lawn decorations, the occasional abducted child, all these wonderful facets come together in one bizarre night. But the most wonderful thing about Halloween is the tradition of the scary story. A tradition that we here at the Travelcast take dead serious. <laughs> what did we talk about? Uh, don't mind Kendall. He's just one of our deditors. It's so hard to find good help these days. Anyways, speaking of traditions of scary stories, this year we bring you another frightful tale by Kevin Anderson, an author you're surely quite familiar with if you're a regular listener of the Travelcast. Kevin has published 60 stories or so over the past few years in places like Dark Animus, Darkness Rising, Dark Wisdom. Well, a lot of publications with the word dark in the title, which is a little misleading because he's really a nice guy. He lives in sunny Southern California with his wife, children, and a turtle named Chalky. 
or rock, depending on which kid you ask. Halloween also marks Kevin's wedding anniversary. That's right, and this year he's celebrating his ninth. I'm sure it will be very necromantic. Just remember, Kevin, if you're looking for gift ideas, demons are a ghoul's best friend. <laughs> Shut the hell up. Anyways, I've always wanted a ghoul friend, but being a ghost, I've never had much luck with the ladies. Women always seem to see right through me. Uh, awkward. Mm, well, on to today's story, I suppose, then. Uh, without further ado, The Boxborn Wraith by Kevin Anderson. Not like this, Shao, Benny pleaded. Just shoot me, please. Shao shook his head. You know I can't, Ben. The boss was very specific. Now get in the damn box. Benny gazed down at the six-foot-long wooden crate at the bottom of a shallow grave. It looked to be hurried work, imperfect corners and protruding nails. Shao's men weren't carpenters. They were killers. And this box, with all its imperfections, buried in the middle of an old graveyard, was Benny's coffin. He knew it was pointless to beg, but Benny didn't know what else to do. Please, Shao, not alive. Don't bury me alive. Jump down there, you skimming bastard or I'm gonna blow your kneecaps off. Shao aimed his gun at Benny's legs. If you don't panic, you got about 24 hours of air down there. You really wanna spend that time in agony. Benny considered for a second, but before he decided, one of Shao's men pushed him in. He landed on his feet and stood up fast, the top of the grave coming up to his chest. Benny's heart pounded and even in the cool October night, his black hair matted with sweat. Shao knelt down. <laughs> you know, the boss owns this old boneyard. Bought it a year back, when the last vacancy filled. He thought it'd be a nice place to bury the trash. You'll be the first. Benny looked out at the gravestones jutting up from a thin layer of fog as orange moonlight shimmered off of a hundred forgotten epitaphs. The only earthborn sources of light came from the porches outside the cemetery. Jack-o'-lanterns burned brightly in the surrounding neighborhood, and as Benny was about to start begging again, he caught a glint of movement. Shao saw it too, and Benny felt the muzzle of the revolver pressed up to his jaw. Go ahead, Ben. Call out. Benny gazed at the trigger-treaters skipping along the sidewalk outside the cemetery, a small group of parents in tow. Make one sound, and I'll blow your mouth clean off. Then I'll have to go kill some kids. 
You don't want to go down like that, Ben. And I ain't no mood to kill kids. Benny opened his mouth, and Shao leaned closer. And, maybe when that's done, I go pay a visit to your house, Benny boy. Say hi to that nice wife and kid of yours. He out trick-or-treating tonight? Benny grabbed Shao's collar. Stay away from my family, you son of a bitch. Shao pointed the gun into Benny's grave. Get in the box, and they'll be fine. Benny knew far too well that Chow didn't make threats. He made promises. The sadistic pig would have no problem abusing his family while Benny slowly suffocated. Sighing, Benny let his hands fall to his side and gazed down at the place where he was meant to die. It was cold, hard, and dark. Atta boy. Now lie down. Let's get this done. Benny lowered himself down and the darkness swept over him like a blanket. Shao, let me have a light. Shao kicked some dirt into the grave, landing on Benny's chest. Won't change nothing. I don't want to die in the dark. Shao pulled a flashlight from his back pocket and tossed it down. We all die in the dark, Benny. Fumbling with the flashlight, Benny pulled it to his chest as Shao's men threw down the lid. One of them jumped in the hole with hammer and nails. Benny lifted his head and peered through a small crack in the lid. Shao stood, holstering his gun, turning to go. Hey, Shao, Benny called. Yeah. Benny clenched his teeth. If I ever see you again... Shao smiled. <laughs> You won't. Benny closed his eyes as the first nails were put into place. He managed to make it through the hammering okay, staying calm, retreating into thoughts of his wife and son. But when the dirt started to fall in loud clumps, Benny started to lose control. His body shook and he started pounding and clawing at the lid. Wooden shards broke loose and stabbed the tender skin under his nails. Blood ran down his fingers as the sound of falling dirt became distant, replaced by the creaking of the wood making up his coffin. He placed his hands flat on the lid, realizing that it was bowing inward from the weight of the dirt. For some reason, he started to laugh, hoping that the lid might implode and crush him. But after a few still moments, Benny realized he wasn't going to be that lucky. The smell of earth, sweat, and freshly cut wood filled his nostrils as he tried to take slow breaths. With no place to go, the sounds of his breathing bounced around the box like a trapped bat, amplifying his panic, feeding his dread. Benny tried to occupy his mind and to not think about his itching neck or his aching legs. He desperately wanted to bend his knees just for a few seconds, and the fact that he couldn't was maddening. He pounded the lid with his fists and screamed until he passed out. He awoke with a jolt, trying to sit up, 
and smacked his head on unforgiving wood. An instant reminder that the nightmare about being buried alive hadn't been a nightmare. He moved the light so he could see his watch. Just past midnight, he'd been buried for four hours. Twenty hours to go, he thought. I can do this, just make it through the next twenty hours without losing my mind, and... A distant sound seized his attention. Benny held his breath, straining to hear it again. He pressed his ear to the lid, and there it was. A faint, digging sound. Someone was digging. Ah, I'm in. He tried to call out, but his previous screaming had strained his voice. It had to be Xiao digging him up, Benny thought. Maybe the boss just wanted to teach him a lesson. Seemed a bit extreme, but... The digging got closer. Or maybe... Maybe it was teenagers on a dare digging up a fresh grave. Yeah, that might be it. It's the kind of Halloween stunt he'd have pulled as a kid. Benny pounded on the lid again. Here, I'm in here. But even before the echo of his voice had faded, he noticed something wrong with the sounds of dirt being moved. It was getting closer, more hurried, and seemed only a few feet away. But the closer it got, the more wrong it seemed. It wasn't until Benny turned his head and pressed an ear to the bottom of the box that he realized what it was. The digging wasn't coming from above. It was coming from below. Oh Jesus, Benny cried, gripping the flashlight, shining its beam around the box. He could feel dirt fall away beneath him, the bottom of the box sagging downward, hanging over a black hole in the earth. Something scraped in the bottom, and Benny jumped. He squirmed, trying to roll on his side, but before he did, something clawed its way down the length of the coffin. Benny froze. Taking a deep breath, he turned his head to the side, aiming the light into the widest seam in the box. The beam bounced off a dirt wall a few feet away, and he saw deep claw marks in its surface. He could hear movement outside, accompanying his own panicked breathing, but every time he chased it down with a flashlight, there was nothing. Then, like earthworms caressing his skin, he felt warm air on the back of his neck. As something very close exhaled. Pulse pounding, he whirled around, eyes wide, and was terrified to see something from outside glaring in. Large white eyes with thick pale eyelids blinked and then narrowed curiously. Benny kicked the box. Get away! He reared for another kick, but a dozen clawed hands burst through the box, seizing him and pulling him downward. His head slammed hard into the dirt as bits of wood rained down around him. He blinked a few times and focused, instantly wishing he hadn't. 
dozen golf ball-sized eyes set inside hideous faces surrounded him. Before Benny could take a breath, he felt clawed hands grab his shirt. The creature pulled Benny's face in close, sniffing him through a pair of slit nostrils just below its wide eyes. It then howled angrily and pushed Benny away. Some of the other creatures backed off in revulsion, looking angry or astonished. Sitting up, Benny took a good look at his captors. Their long arms allowed them simian-like movements, reaching forward on worn knuckles and swinging their legs underneath. If it wasn't for their noseless faces and bald skin, Benny would have thought them hairless chimpanzees. A few of the creatures wore clothes, not for function, but more as decoration. He cringed in horror, recognizing several popular tattoo patterns on their garments. Their clothes were fashioned from human skin. Benny was pushed towards a torch-lit corridor as the small group started to move. He had to stay crouched in the four-foot-high passage, which was the perfect size for its inhabitants. Stumbling along the descending tunnel, Benny was prodded from behind. He could hear them talking in language he'd never heard before, but the tone was unquestionably angry. Suddenly, he emerged into an enormous gymnasium-sized chamber. Coffins, stacked up like bleachers, lined the walls. The seats were filled with what seemed to be females of the species and hordes of their brood. As he walked past, the smaller eyes of the young ones stared at him, glazing over with hunger. Disappointment seemed to flash over their gaunt faces. The scene reminded Benny of pictures of starving children and their bloated stomachs, ripe with malnutrition. A tall, thin female, wearing human teeth around her neck like a pearl necklace, emerged from behind a pile of discarded jewelry, watches, and gold fillings. She walked toward Benny, holding a staff constructed of bone. The others cleared a path, and Benny tried to stand up straight. She tapped his chest with the staff, and then placed a hand over his heart. Benny felt his heart beat faster at her touch. She shook her head, then turned to her people and spoke in their strange language. They didn't seem to like what she had to say. Commotion exploded around the room. Some yelled with rage, some sobbed. The one that had grabbed him earlier pushed to the front and started yelling. He held a broken femur like a dagger and thrust it up and down. The female jabbed her staff into the dirt defiantly. The larger male took a step back with a slight bow, but then roared savagely and lunged at Benny. Benny brought his hands up as the creature landed on his chest. Swinging a fist, Benny connected with the side of its bald head. It fell back, howling like an enraged ape, then came again, this time with teeth. Benny heard a crunch and screamed as it bit into his wrist. He pulled with all his strength, wildly thrashing and kicking at his attacker, but the creature suddenly let go. It stumbled back, gagging, its face splattered with Benny's blood. Gasping for air, it grabbed its throat before falling to the dirt floor, its tiny legs twitching. Then it lay still, dead. Before Benny could attend to his wound, the female pulled him up, dragged him to the rear of the chamber, and threw an opening. Crouching, 
Benny whirled around and saw her wave the bone staff at the doorway. In an instant, the opening of the room vanished, replaced by a wall of dirt. Thinking it safe for the moment, Benny examined his wrist. To his astonishment, he wasn't even bleeding. The cuts were deep, but there was no pain. It was like he was looking at a wound on someone else's body. The female moved past him, and Benny gazed around the room, noticing the familiarity of his new surroundings in an instant. It had a high cathedral ceiling, pews made of coffins, and a podium of mud and bone. Beyond was an altar, decorated with elaborate hieroglyphs. The creatures were depicted carrying coffins, worshipping them, and feasting on the contents. Life, the female said. The boxes are life. Benny's head was spinning, but he started to understand. A word was floating around in his mind for a few moments, seemingly searching for a sane place to land. When sanity seemed unavailable, he finally just said it. Ghouls. Boxes empty for so long, she said. Her speech labored as if struggling for every syllable. Then you... You eat the dead to live, Benny said, more to himself than his savior. Remembering what happened to the one that just bit him, he knew why they couldn't consume him alive. Living blood was poisonous. But why not just kill me and eat me after, he asked. She thrust the staff past the altar toward a mud statue of a female, arms spread wide, reaching for the surface. The mother forbids, must not make dead. Mother forbids, Benny repeated. <laughs> well, don't that just beat all? The ghouls got religion. He looked into her huge eyes as an idea erupted in his mind. I think you and I can work this out. Benny pointed up. You send me back up there and I'll fill your boxes. <laughs> man, oh man, will I fill your boxes. Benny saw the female smile, a yellow jagged tooth grin, and he knew she understood. Not much later, Benny clawed his way out of the ground through a narrow hole in the earth that the female ghoul had created with the thrust of her staff. Flopping down in the cemetery grass, he took air deep into his lungs, the cold night invigorating every muscle in his body. He rolled over and looked at his wound. It still didn't hurt, and he'd almost forgotten about it. The tears in the flesh seemed only scratches, and beneath he could feel his muscle pulse with energy he'd never felt before. There was a tingle on his scalp as he ran his fingers through his hair. Thick black strands fell away. He looked at the clumps in his hands, sighing. <laughs> Small price to pay, he said with a grin. Benny took a deep breath and then jumped to his feet with a simian's grace. He felt strong, hungry, and ready to make good on a promise. He didn't know what he was becoming, but he did know that Shao 
would be the first to find out. A second chance at life. What a heartwarming tale. Never give up. Being buried alive might just be the start to a zany underground adventure where you'll make new friends, learn lessons about life, win the girl, and then return as an undead menace to the mob. I don't know about you, but all this talk about eating corpses has really got my tummy box growling. Kendall, what do you say we swing by Cadaver Barrel and get us some real down-home cooking? Ah yes, you're in the mood for seafood then. Well, what about dead mobster? Ah yes, I hate the lines there too, but they do have good cheese biscuits. Ugh, really? Aren't you tired of Denny's? Okay, okay, I suppose they do make a pretty good murder burger. Well, that's all for this week, kiddies. If you enjoyed the show, consider making a I am here with Kevin David Anderson, uh, the author of the story we're going to be reviewing that you just listened to, The Boxborn Wraith, which we ran back in October 2008, episode 87. It seems like forever ago. Uh, really excited to talk to Kevin here because he was one of our uh, our first authors that started writing really solid horror for us and, and building this tradition of the, the Halloween episode that Drabblecast has been infamous for. How are you doing, Kevin? I'm fantastic. How are you? I'm fantastic, too. We're both fantastic. <laughs> Uh, you know, Kevin, I, I wanted to just start off by saying I appreciate you in existence altogether because back in the day in 2007, whenever it was me and Kendall and Luke and the editors of our original little uh, makeshift podcast here, we were all writing our own stories and publishing them. And we, we opened up the slush without really knowing what we were doing. And we didn't get a whole lot of good stuff <laughs> at first, as you can imagine, but we got one fantastic story that I'll never forget that maybe launched the whole Drabblecast, and it was a story called Momentum, which we ran in August of 2007, and I remember thinking to myself, this is what I want to do, because this story, man, it had an awesome twist. It just was, it had carnies and cannibals and everything I wanted, and I thought to myself, if I can put a call out there to authors, and they'll write stuff like this, and I can do this stuff in audio... I might be able to do this. It might be fun to do this. <laughs> but do you remember writing that story? That was a while back, right? Oh, yeah. I love that story. It was actually inspired by something that John Lennon wrote. It was a little short flash fiction piece where he uh, kind of had the same ending. Uh, he didn't have the whole carnival thing and the whole end of the world thing going, but he just had the whole uh, lure someone down into the basement for a snack. <laughs> you know, and you just don't think of John Lennon writing stuff like that, but he he had a really creepy dark side. But it was an innocuous snack. It wasn't like a cannibalistic <laughs> snack. No, it was no, it was cannibalistic. Yeah, oh. no. <laughs> <laughs> very very similar ending. I kind of just added the sledgehammer. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, and, and tactfully so, too, because it definitely fooled me. I was like, where's this thing going? Uh, the world building was so cool in that store. And I'd encourage listeners to go back and check that one out from the archives because you've got like just these subtle hints at things scuttering around at night and why the girl needs to go down there. And you uh-huh. know, we've already kind of ruined the twist, but it doesn't matter at this point because the craft of it was just so, so very cool. And it was such, it's like a thousand word story, right? Like it's a flash piece. Yeah, yeah. I remember I had some great comments back in the old, the, what was it? The, I mean, not the forums, but you had you used to be able to make uh, comments right on your feed there. Right. And uh, Mr. Tweedy, he had the, my favorite comment ever uh, from anything I've ever written. He said, he goes, that was sick and twisted, and I wish I could wash it out of my mind. <laughs> and, and he didn't mean it in a positive way, but I, I took it that way very much so. And I just, I, I said, yes, I, I nailed it. Oh, Mr. Tweedy. <laughs> I mean, I I, th- I feel like he was a forum moderator that we all just put there so that we could um, do stuff like that to him. We could torture him, and that would be our litmus uh, test. <laughs> we've we've kept in touch since then. I mean, no, we've back and forth, and uh, he's looked at a couple of my things uh, in the past and helped me with some graphics. And yeah, it's been a great relationship. Uh, um, him and a couple other people I met through the Drabblecast. Bo uh, did a cover for me for a book um, a few years back. So. It's a great collection, a collaboration of artists, and a great place to meet people, too. We've known each other for over a decade now, if you think about it then, because of that. First time we've talked, though. <laughs> it's true. And that's a weird world we live in now, the lateral kind of global economy of things. But Bo yeah. and Tweedy and all these folks that we've, the community that we've built, it's very neat thinking about all the folks that we know now as a result of stories bringing us together. Yeah, we all have kids now and married and yeah. <laughs> grown up together. Not me. I live in a basement underneath a carnival, and I just kind of lure kids down. <laughs> yeah, that's what I figured, yeah. <laughs> just doing the same old, same old. <laughs> it, was, it wasn't long after um, Momentum that we ran, you you got the Night of the Living Trekkies kind of deal going. That was kind of a thing with like, Pride, Prejudice, and Zombies and... Um, oh, well, that came Pride, Prejudice, and Zombies came out in uh, 2009, and I had just I had just finished my draft, my first draft, and I was looking at it, and I, I just decided, it's like, no one's ever going to publish this. Um, it just too many copyright infringements, and, uh, and then I heard on NPR that, wait, wait, don't tell me, um, I think the author was on. He was talking about it, and I said, and he mentioned the publisher, and I said, wow, so there's at least one publisher out there I can send this to. And I sent it to one publisher, and they picked yeah. it up. Quirk Publishing out of uh, Philadelphia. Uh, uh, fantastic editor, fantastic staff. Yeah, and that author was um, Seth? Seth Graham Smith, yeah. He went on to do uh, scripts for Tim Burton. His next book was the uh, Abraham Lincoln Vampire Slayer. Right. So he kind of, yeah, he kind of helped push uh, historical figures into the horror realm. Um, yeah, yeah. So he had a, got a fantastic career going. I remember I was really influenced by all that that movement of the twist of classic literature, and we we had a story by Ben H. Winters who did one of the stories in that um, whole genre. I think it was the Sense and Sensibility and Sea Monsters, or one of those. Which one was it? He did Sense and Sensibility and Sea Monsters, and he also did uh, Anna. Oh, Anna, uh, the robot one. Yeah, and Android Karenina. <laughs> yeah, Ben's great. Yeah, he did a, a Drabblecast 169. The reenactment was an original piece that I uh, we, we got from him that we commissioned. And it's a great story. And I, that's how I pulled into that whole world I was because it said mm-hmm. so much about Drabblecast to me. I was like, man, I love it when other publishers are in line with our thinking. Uh, 
you know, the, the the fact that you'd have ninjas and zombies and classic literature together, I thought at that point in our development was just neat. And I, I guess that it kind of phased out at some point, that whole thing. But Yeah, it was very trendy, you know, and then everyone did it. For the first couple of years, Quirk had just kind of locked in. They could, actually, a guy named Jason Rakulik, he's the guy who picked up my book and edited Night of the Living Trekkies. Uh, he's, he kind of created that whole genre. He actually... Um, he came up with the idea for Pride, Prejudice, and Zombies, and he hired Seth hmm. as uh, to collaborate and put together to do the writing. Um, so, and he kind of created, and he kind of came up with every title in their series there. And he contacted Ben. Um, recently, uh, he's he kind of left Quirk, and he's now an author, and he has a book out, and his book is being optioned. Uh, his first book is being optioned by Netflix now. Oh, that is so nice. I can't remember the name of it, though. But it's a middle-grade horror kind of a thing. He he also kind of was in charge of that middle-grade line at Quirk Books where the, it was the, kind of the Cthulhu mythos at, at a middle school mm-hmm. or a high school. Mm-hmm. So there was a series of books like that. Yeah, I think it's so neat that the day and age we live in, I mentioned Netflix, um, you know, the, the Black Mirror and, and stuff like that starts out as just writers that we know. Um, one big one that jumps to mind is Jeff Vandermeer, who did the uh, the Weird Tales anthology, who's a friend of mine. And the next thing you know, when you turn your shoulder, the guy's got Annihilation on Hollywood. You know, I mean, it happens so quick sometimes. It's, yeah. it's amazing. Yeah, I'm still waiting for my, my call. It's coming. <laughs> I got your back. I'm waiting there with you, too. <laughs> yeah, well, um, there was a couple of Night of the Living Trekkies got uh, looked at seriously a couple of times. And then... Uh, the people who own Star Trek and CBS, they weren't thrilled about it. So it was never going to happen, but um, came close a couple times. Oh, man. If it had just been Star Wars, then maybe it would have worked out. Yeah. Because George Lucas like, sells his soul at this point for anything, you know? Pretty much, pretty much. What can you do, though? you got to be a Trek hero, a Star Wars fan, <laughs> one or the other. <laughs> Play both sides. Yeah, they did do some great uh, Star Wars horror books. They did Death Troopers. Which was uh, zombies. Uh, which was it was all it all got George Lucas's approval. Uh, it all went through Lucas Publishing. Um, you know, uh, zombie stormtroopers. Uh, it, was, it was it's a fun read. Huh. Yeah, that's the key thing, right? I think like it's easy to pinpoint these um, kind of extreme, random quirky things that like oh pride prejudice and zombies what a crazy idea to mix it up it's still got to be fun it's got to have good like talented oh, people yeah. behind it or it's not i mean i would never endorse it otherwise like it's got to be all of that stuff into one yeah i mean they really treated the source material with some reverence too mm-hmm. and they were just really kind of combining the genres really mashing it up well well, tell me a little bit about, um, you know, since this is the first time we've ever spoken in 11 years or ever, um, kind of what was your relationship with writing? Have you always written since you were a kid or how did you discover the craft and, and enjoyed it? Um, well, I really kind of start out in advertising and marketing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of where copywriting and that kind of thing. Um, I did a little fiction on the side. I didn't really know what I was doing. Uh, no formal training in, in writing at all, really, other than uh, advertising and marketing, which is it's just which is basically fiction, you know. Uh, <laughs> you know, you're 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 selling stuff is uh, is all about making stuff up and convincing people to uh, go with what they already believe, and mm-hmm. um, so it, it was it was always something I wanted to do. Um, I got into it slowly. I wrote a couple of short stories that went nowhere especially before the internet, this is before the internet. But uh, once I started connecting with other uh, writing groups online, because um, I didn't have any friends that were writers and you know, my writing improved and somewhere around 2003, I, I sold my first story. Um, 
for a whole $25. So I you know, couldn't quit my job. Um, yeah, and it's just been plucking away at it ever since. Uh, the stories got longer and longer. I really got inspired. I, I really love stories. Um, o- OTR, old-time radio. Uh-huh. CBS Mystery Theater and Nightscape and Suspense and X-1. I think those are the great, some of the greatest stories uh, ever created. Uh, you know, uh, Bradbury used to write for a lot of these uh, programs. And um, I used to listen to him uh, as a kid in the backyard of my radio, little transistor radio. And, uh, you know, it was always something I wanted to do. Like, I know I can create this when I got a shot. And, you know, selling my story to you guys was, it was kind of like it was coming full circle because I, you, know, you had turned one of my stories into something I loved, which is, um, and then, you know, an audio production. Um, and you know, of course it, it sounded so much better than when I read it to myself. So it was really listening to you guys, uh, those first couple of those first 10 stories you put out those first episodes, there was one with a helicopter. Oh, I, think yeah. Luke, I think Luke wrote it. Luke wrote it, it, was, yeah. it was really inspirational because it was such a great straightforward story. And then it just all flipped on its end with the last line. It was fantastic, and that was kind of like the kind of story I wanted to write, the kind of things I wanted to do. It's really neat to me that you, um, your relationship with storytelling and stuff kind of was started with audio and the relationship between story and audio with those, the transistor radio and Bradbury back in the day. Like, you've always kind of seen that relationship, and so it must not have been a weird thing to be like, here's this podcast that just started up, you know, what's a podcast? And, oh, they do stories, they read them. Like, for a lot of people back in 2006 and 2007, that was like a very strange thing if you're an author to even try that out right so yeah even from audiobooks to and then podcasts which was just a kind of like kicked everything up because they added sound effects i never understood why they never added sound effects and stuff to audiobooks back in the back in the day i mean it just seemed like such a natural progression to just add some sound effects or some background notes i remember some star trek novels i listened to they did have some of the sound effects from the series just to kind of give it that extra. Yeah, you know, it starts to tiptoe into the world of radio drama the more you do that stuff. And I guess the audio book people don't really want to be audio drama people. They want to separate themselves from that CBS radio kind of vibe. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I can see that. But I, I don't know. It's a different medium, so it needs to change. It needs to, you need, you need to add something to it. I mean, I agree. I mean, there's no, there's no black or white. There's a lot of gray there to explore, I think. And Drabblecast has always tried to do that. I think I've produce stories that really enhanced a story through sound effects and, and music, but I've also probably ruined a couple with some extra pieces <laughs> here and there. I've learned along the way about how to do it, you know, and I definitely, the worst, the last thing an, uh, an editor ever wants to do is make a story less effective, you know? Yeah. Well, I, I, I really believe that you've taken a lot of my stories, especially momentum and some of them, and just, it just made them so much better through audio. You know, they, sometimes they don't read as well, but they just sound amazing. There was one moment in the story we're going to listen to in a second here, a Boxborn Wraith, where I'll never forget where I felt a little bit of affirmation on uh, on this whole topic where, um, you know, my mom is, my mom's a mom. She, she's not like a, a, a weird mom. She's like the, the normal one of the house and she doesn't listen to like a whole lot of my stuff. <laughs> you know? Okay. But um, she was listening to that story and that's not the kind of thing she would ever do. And I remember her being, um, you know, talking to me on the phone when I was off in Baltimore about um, the moment whenever he's in the, in the casket, he's in the underground and scratching and the dirt falling off the top of the, 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 um, 
you know, the coffin onto him and stuff and the sound effects really um, striking her. And I was like, man, it can reach anybody. That That is kind of a cool aspect of audio is that um, this is a story about ghouls coming up and eating mobsters and stuff. It's very unusual for, for your average literature person or somebody who's not acquainted to horror or uh, the fantastic, but the sound effects and stuff will pull anybody in. Like, I mean, any kind of good atmosphere is something entrancing to some folks, you know, even my mom. So I'll never forget that. This is like 10 years ago when she said like, man, I was really into it whenever that i just heard that sound effect that the headphones on i was walking and it freaked me the f- out i mean she didn't say that <laughs> but uh, i was like well it was, that wasn't just me it was me and kevin we did that for you mom <laughs> but another part about that part in the story is just that it taps into something that we've all we've all had a fear of being locked in a box or in any confined space oh it's terrifying oh, it's, it is terrifying you can't bend your knees you can't you can't move you can't turn over it's just you can't see? Oh, yeah. I'm getting creeped out right, yeah, right now. <laughs> I know, dude. And to think that there's like maybe things underneath you trying to eat you. I mean, it's, it's, where did you start with this story? Like when you sat down with your pen, were you thinking this kind of stuff? Was this where your head was at? Yeah, I wanted to. Well, this was kind of a continuation of a story I, I had already done, actually, a couple versions of the story. So I really wanted to do a story that kind of focused more on who the ghouls were, you know, as a society and, and a, um, you know, and, and the religion, you know, that which just kind of evolved as I wrote it. Hmm. But yeah, I really just kind of wanted to focus on these ghouls and who they were. And, and um, Ben, the character, was just kind of a delivery system to, to get down there. <laughs> Literally. So, yeah. That's neat. Yeah. You really just wanted to get to know these ghouls, you know? <laughs> well, this was our, our second Halloween special. Our first one was by you. You started this tradition um, with us about um, the Halloween special being a big deal for Travelcast. And uh, it summoned fourth Crypt Keeper Norm, mm-hmm. and, uh, who, who was uh, our guest host every Halloween, That um, much to my chagrin. I can't hold the guy back. He just comes out of, out of the ground and demands that he has the microphone. But uh, he, he was birthed then and uh, with pumpkin seeds. And then this mm-hmm. is your second one. I think I probably hit you up um, with inadequate time prior to Halloween and said, Kevin, can I get something from you? <laughs> it's always coming up and you had this one ready. Yeah, it's always good to have a couple in the chamber in case somebody calls. Yeah. So, yeah, let's listen to it. This is uh, Drabblecast 87, Boxborn Wraith by Kevin, uh, as we used to call you, No J Anderson. But now you're just Kevin D. Kevin D. Anderson. <laughs> Not like this, Shao, Benny pleaded. Just shoot me, please. Shao shook his head. You know I can't, Ben. The boss was very specific. Now get in the damn box. <laughs> Benny gazed down the six-foot-long wooden crate at the bottom cool of the shadow grave. a way to start a story grave. in general, right? I mean, like, you've got to be get hurried. in the box, you know? Yeah. I was always curious about your, your pronunciation of the, the bad guy's name there. I, I wrote it. I wrote the name. I can't. I pulled it out of somewhere, but in my head it sounded different. And then I heard your saying the way you said "chow," and I go, "Oh, yeah, that sounds better." Oh, okay. <laughs> it sounds kind of like Asian, right? Like "chow," yeah, but that's what I pictured. Yeah, he was kind of Asian. He was bald. Of course, I didn't describe him at all because I just wanted to move the story. Yeah. Uh, some of the people are constant. Whenever I get a story back from someone, they say, you need to describe things. You need to describe the person. What do they look like? Well, I don't yeah, I think of Chow as kind of like an Italian uh, mobster of Asian descent. <laughs> yeah, kind of yeah. Mobster voice, but he's his name Chow because of mom's side. You know? for a second. 
Bye-bye. I was picturing that Bond villain, the bald one, who had the, the, the hat that he threw with the blade in it. With the... Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like that him and the protagonist don't have like an antagonistic relationship. He's just doing what needs to be done, you know? Absolutely, it's not personal. Nothing's per- it's business, kid. <laughs> you know, the boss owns this old boneyard. Bought it a year back when the last vacancy filled. What a good business call. Like, if you're a gangster, why not buy a graveyard? Oh, yeah. Bury all your garbage. I've never heard somebody do that before. It makes sense. I know there's a Halloween tie in here, and I don't remember if I added that when you asked the, me to send you something. Oh, yeah. Do you know where it is? Uh, I think it has to do with children. There's there's, there's trick-or-treaters in the background yeah, or something. that's what it was. There's trick-or-treaters. Yeah. So I, I don't think I had that in there, and then you asked for a Halloween, you know, something for Halloween, and of course it has to take place on Halloween, or it should. Yeah. Um, so I had to put in the trick. So that, but that created some great dialogue too. Yeah. Muzzle of the revolver pressed up to his jaw. Go ahead, Ben. Call out. Benny gazed at the trigger treaters skipping along the sidewalk outside the cemetery, a small group of parents in tow. That's my favorite thing about the mythology of Halloween, by the way. I love the idea that there's schools and all sorts of heinous shit happening around. The kids are just dancing around in masks and not unaware of, like, the ghouls and the druids. What a fantastic image. Just looking for chocolate, yeah. Looking for chocolate. Can I get some trick-or-treaters? I'll go pay a visit to your house, Benny boy. Say hi to that nice wife and kid of yours. <laughs> Your first story, by the way, Pumpkin Seeds, is all about kidnapping the, the wife and the kid car. kind of thing, too. Like, it had that, that's Stay like a crux of the story, it seems like. Bitch. I don't remember being this dark. <laughs> yeah, you're a twisted f***er, man. <laughs> In the best possible way, I hope. Benny knew far yeah. too well that Shao didn't make threats. He made promises. The sadistic pig would have no problem abusing his family while Benny slowly suffocated. Oh, Chow's kind of a dick. Benny let his hands yeah, fall to his yeah, side. Yeah, he's just doing his job. Though, down he's got to pay that Geico bill. <laughs> it's cold, hard, and dark. Head up, boy. Now lie down. Let's get this done. Do you think about like what that would be like? Like if you have to dig your own grave or something? Like I don't think I could do it. You know? No, I would just cry. I'd, I would just curl into a ball and cry. <laughs> I'd be like, shoot me now, or I'm gonna really, freak I, out. Really, please, sh- please shoot me. And why do all that labor before you're going to die anyway? Exactly. I think somewhere in here I mentioned about the air, how long it would take to breathe or something. Or we all die in the dark. I, I remember trying to research that and I couldn't find it, so I ended up just making it up. So I have no idea how long it would really take. It's got to be hard to find, like researching how much air it takes in a grave till you die. <laughs> yeah, like, unless you've conducted that experiment, I mean, who would you know? <laughs> Translated after afterlife. Holstering his gun. <laughs> hey, Shao. Benny called. Yeah. Benny clenched his teeth. If I ever see you again, Shao smiled. <laughs> you won't. Another guy who's uh, who's also kind of inspired by the Drabblecast, Jason Hill. He started his own podcast, uh, the Horror Hill Podcast. Oh yeah, Horror Hill. Uh, yeah, he's a big fan of you. Um, and uh, so yeah, so he wanted to do his version of Box Born Race, and uh, 
uh, and he, their stuff goes up on YouTube and stuff. So, and a lot of the comments were when it was over was like, you know, what happens next? Where, where does it go? You know, where does it go from here? Um, in my mind, the whole story has always been kind of just complete. It's always just, it's had a, has a solid beginning and a solid ending. You know, you kind of know where Benny, we know, you know where Benny's going to go and what he's going to do. He kind of says it right there, you know, just a few minutes ago. So, uh, I, I've never been able to continue this story. I know a lot of people want want it to continue. I just don't know where it would go that wouldn't be obvious. I think it's a complete story. I felt really like there was a uh, we get what we're gonna get in the end of this thing. You know, we get the vengeance, the retribution is implied. Yeah, I felt fulfilled. Yeah. Well, good, good. Uh, you're in the minority though. <laughs> Even my wife says, "Well, what happens next?" I, 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 you know, he goes and does what he says he's gonna do. He's gonna get vengeance and. The only way the story can continue is if it if it went off track a little bit, if it, if it didn't go the you know down the obvious tunnel of uh, vengeance going perfectly well. Yeah. But that story, yeah. the story's been done a lot. Like I remember Swamp Things origin stories, kind of like that, and Dark Man, uh, the Sam Raimi films are all kind of like that. You know, so it seems like that story's been told. Yeah, you got to close a short story out. You know, it's part of the whole game. Yeah. Yeah. Here's the sound effects my mom liked. How'd you do that? Hands flat on the lid, realizing you know, like, that it was I, bowing I, inward. I generally like to make my own dirt. effects, but I think I found part of that for um, some reason online and then laugh, sprinkled in reverb and things and messed with it a little bit. Crush him. Huh. Yeah, because I couldn't quite. I mean, moments, there's something about like it's got to have that wood sound to it, you know? Mm-hmm. And I just couldn't do it. I couldn't bury myself in a crate underground and record audio, unfortunately, for this one. <laughs> It also echoes the sentiment that gangsters are not good craftsmen, too. They're, they build shitty boxes. They do. They do. Just for a few seconds. And the fact that he couldn't was maddening. He pounded the lid with his fists and screamed. Now, I remember, I do remember this. When I was writing this, I, I really was just imagining what this would be like, you know, how it would be. My knees, for some reason, it kept coming back to me because I have this I, thing where um, I need to bend my knees every once in a while just for, you know, just sitting there or lying still. I mean, walking. Yeah, yeah. You just need to bend or you need to twist, and it would be maddening. Oh, you're right. I mean, you can't even flip on your side. Just pass Yeah. And the fact that you, you may not need to, but the fact that you're not you're not allowed to would drive you crazy. I I did talk to a friend of mine I met in college. Um, she spent a, some time in an I want to say an asylum or a mental health clinic, where they put her in four point restraints, and her description of that was just just terrifying. It and they left her there overnight. You know, like turn the lights out. I mean, that's just that's just horrifying. It is. It's a complete lack of control, you know, like everything's yeah. taken from you. you yeah, an, an, an itchy nose would just <laughs> start oh. screaming. <laughs> yeah, leading up into this box moment, I really tried to make the momentum of the story. There was a pulsing dunk, 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 dunk in the, in the music that, as they were talking, the gangster and, 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 and Ben. Um, and then I just wanted to cut off, and so it's quiet, and it's just, you know, you're thinking about these things as you're in this quiet, empty space. And the piano kind of drops in slowly, but... You know, to me, it's like you, you set it up so well in the fact that, like, there's a lot of tension at the beginning of it. There's a lot of dialogue. And once he's in it, I guess drop all that audio. You're alone in this stark black. 
digging up a fresh grave. Yeah, I was really wor- I was worried about this because I'm not. I I love writing dialogue. I love the back and forth between characters. This is all just internal stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. And, you know that's that's. A, I think I find that much harder as a writer too than the dialogue. The dialogue is usually natural. Comes naturally. Interesting. So you're right about the inner dialogue with the character talking to himself and stuff. That's more pulling it out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And seemed only a few feet away. But the closer it got, the more wrong it seemed. It wasn't until Benny turned his head and pressed an ear to the bottom of the box that he realized what it was. The digging wasn't coming from above. It was coming from below. Oh, that's it. Man, that is Jesus. bringing the spine tingles cried, back, dude. I remember that line. Inside hideous faces surrounded him. Before Benny could take a breath, he felt clawed hands grab his shirt. The creature pulled Benny's face in close, sniffing him through a pair of slit nostrils just below its wide eyes. It then howled angrily and pushed Benny away. Some of the other creatures backed off in revulsion, looking angry you know, or astonished. You when I, uh, originally, I, when I was originally thinking of these creatures, and this was a, well, before I had written the story, because like I, I mentioned earlier, I had a couple iterations of the story. Um, I was picturing a chimpanzee completely shaved and kind of like with a skull type of a head, and they moved like chim- they moved like apes in my mind, you know, kind of going forward on, on the knuckles and bring, dragging themselves back. But that was basically what I was picturing, uh, a shaved chimpanzee with a with no nose, kind of a empty skull nose. Oh, like two slits. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like a Voldemort. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Chimpanzees are ripped too. I mean, they're like oh, muscular. Their arms are just intense, and then their legs, which just kind of swing back. From I thought that would be the best way for them to move through a tunnel too. You know, if they were tunnel tunneling creatures too, swinging back and forth. Like that. It's cool. You don't really even get into the description of these things too much. They just come up from the ground. They grab him. They're, they're breathing on him. I mean, mm-hmm. you gotta wonder if this guy's thinking this is even real. The one that had grabbed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, is he passed out? Is he hallucinating? <laughs> yeah, how's he, he keeping that shit together? Like a dagger, twisted <laughs> up and down. The female jabbed her staff into the dirt defiantly. The larger male took a step back with a slight bow but then roared savagely and lunged at Benny. Benny brought his hands up as the creature landed on his chest. Swinging a fist, Benny connected with the side of its ball. I there was a whole fight scene. Yeah, where did you get that roar? It was... Yeah, a cave bear. It sounds animal-y, and I wanted it to sound more mm-hmm. animal than human, you know? Like I wanted it to sound like a, bear, a cave bear. Uh, you know, it's interesting, though, like, to the um, extent that these ghouls have a civilization, uh, I've seen a couple other situations in, in fiction where ghouls have a queen or a hierarchy around queens, and that's it's kind of where you're going, too, I guess, right? Well, why wouldn't they? I mean, you know, they have an organized society. I think any any humanoid creature is going to have a society of some some type. Uh, is it like a, like a queen is in, like, Weyland yutani queen, where there's a big X sack and... You know, there's a bunch of little ghouls <laughs> popping out in a, a mech machine. Or what is this queen's role? Is it just strict leadership? I don't know. Clearly, you've given it more thought than I have. So I don't know the political <laughs> dynamics of the school society. <laughs> the creatures were depicted. Are they registered to vote? What is more? Are they, yeah, as a capitalist, socialist monarchy. Or... <laughs> the female said, "The boxes are life." Benny's head was spinning. But he started to understand. 
A word was floating around in his mind for a few moments, seemingly searching for a sane place to land. The box is our life is the great line, she said. It, it would also be a great alternative title, too. Oh, yeah, um, the box is our life. I, I did have, like, one of the earlier stories with these uh, creatures was just called Boxes. But um, if I ever go back to it, it's going to be called The Boxes is Life. Nice. Yeah, you can make a whole box series. You could have a box set. But why not just and eat me after? He asked. She thrust the staff past the altar toward a mud statue of a female, arms spread wide, reaching for the surface. The mother forbids. Must not make dead. Mother forbids, Benny repeated. I love, like, you know, my, my, one of my favorite movies Don't is Predator, be because such a cool um, animal, uh, alien animal that hunts and does horrible things, but does it by a code. And I've just loved that. I've always loved that. I have things that have to operate in rules. And, I, and these ghouls have the same kind of sets of standards that they can do heinous things to people, but within a set of parameters. Yeah. Well, I think that, you know, the, even throughout human history, religion has tried to create rules that would be of health benefits, you know, like not eating pork and stuff like that. And this is kind of something along those lines, too, where they're where the queen or the, the leader here is using religion to, you know, for their for their benefit of their health, you know. Maybe not even know. Well, maybe not. No. Well, when these as these traditions get passed on and on, you know, you, nobody knows what the reasons were for the rule anymore. Absolutely. They just keep uh, practicing. Yeah. I was, talking, I was telling my daughter to, the other day that traditions were um, peer pressure from dead people. <laughs> so, yeah, that'll make her follow them. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah. I always wanted to ask you what what gave you the idea. I mean, when you were approaching your Halloween episode, why uh, did you always know you were going to go with a different uh, narration style or host style? You mean like with uh with the uh, crypt keeper norm? Yeah, the Halloween dad jokes, which I love. Oh, yeah. You know, so much of that stuff develops just because I can't help it, because that's how my brain is. Um, it just, I've always loved, you, you watched uh, Tales from the Crypt before, right? Uh, oh, gosh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Tales from the Crypt was like a thing back in the day for me that I was like, man, look at how stupid that thing looks, that puppet, and look at his bad jokes. And uh, my, my whole Halloween experience was kind of founded in that concept of just, bad Halloween jokes and the silliness of it all mixed with the fear of it all and, and uh, just, I just love the, the idea of, of something like that being goofy you know tail. so it just kind of came out and Never then once I did it once yeah here he adventure. is we'll make new friends learn lessons about life win the girl and then return as an undead menace to the mob. Like within the last hour, I was listening to Pumpkin Seed, and uh, your first attempt at uh, Crypt Keeper Norm was—it just sounded a little different. And this one, you're really, you know, uh, you're really getting into it. He gets more gritty over time, and uh, yeah, he gets more frustrated and, and um, jaded. He starts seeing Halloween as kind of like the tradition that like all these college kids are dressing up slutty as, and just he gets <laughs> really just the whole thing becomes disenfranchised from what he originally thought a Halloween was supposed to be about, and now he's just kind of like, what, what the fuck, whatever. I mean, I don't even care anymore, man. <laughs> so the last several Halloweens have been about him coming to terms with his ideology, his, his foundational kind of core beliefs. <laughs> 
<laughs> but yeah, originally he was a happy-go-lucky crypt keeper that just told really bad jokes. And I know uh, people, uh, I thought to myself that people don't understand the foundation of where this character is coming from, how it's a satire and a pun of this original, you know, Tales from the Crypt mythology, then they're not going to get it. It's not going to be funny. I was like, well, whatever. I mean, this is 2007. Nobody's listened to this podcast. What am I going to lose, you know? Yeah, really? <laughs> so, uh, but then people liked it. They, and it, be, it kind of grew. And now there's like this expectation, like Halloween's coming up in October and it's like August. And I'm thinking about what I'm going to be writing with this character because he's got this like eight, 10 year trajectory and character arc now. And last, mm-hmm. last year he had a cat sitting on his, his belly and he, the cat was disgruntled because he was like skeleton. And he's like, oh, blasted. Oh, cat's just falling through, you know? He's just frustrated <laughs> by so many things. It's a, who knows where he's going to go next. But, you know, he's one of those multiple personalities that at some point somebody will clinically diagnose me for and put me one of those four-point jackets that you were talking about. Four-point restraints, yeah. Um, I I really think he ought to come out more than once a year. I mean, um, uh, maybe Arbor Day, you know, (laughs) (laughs) just another holiday, you know, maybe a Christmas or Thanksgiving special. Columbus Day, kids. (laughs) (laughs) Why not? You yeah. heard of polio before? <laughs> Smallpox, anyone? Yeah, yeah, maybe. I'll have to think about it. It's, it's definitely a, a fun concept. I, I, I love bringing it up, but I love also introducing, um, you know, I have to always talk about the narrator and the author, and it was always fun bringing in your bio and trying to tweet mm-hmm. year to year. It's just, uh, oh, Kevin Anderson's back again. With another, you know? yes. <laughs> well, tell me what kind of, uh, what projects do you have coming up? And, uh, or do you, do we have anything plugged that you've got, you want us to send listeners to? What should be excited about? Oh, I absolutely would. Um, I have a book coming out in October. Nice. called Midnight Men from Grinning Skull Press. Uh, it follows my characters, Dale and Earl, which are kind of like um, picture supernatural if they were 50, redneck, and they drove trucks. Oh. Uh, it's kind of a fun. It's, it's a lot of fun. Um, so that's coming out in October, and then I'll, I'll have, I have a couple of appearances. I'll be at Midsummer Screen in August in Southern California, and I'll be at the San Diego Book Festival in August. Well, Kevin, man, it's been awesome talking to you and, and uh, getting to know you here finally after all, a decade. And uh, we will open up the comments to here, and hopefully people will get back to us on forums at Drabblecast.org and, and let us know what they thought about this episode. All right. Thanks, you know.